MasterCard CEO Ajay Banga is a diligent leader who does not take growth for granted. Getting that vision and mission clear and simple, and then having tools to measure progress against it, and then putting those tools in front of really good people, and then getting out of the way, is kind of what leadership is about. And leadership is not about doing it yourself. Born, raised, and fully educated in India, he credits a healthy amount of risk taking to his success, as well as having the endurance to overcome strong challenges. Everybody I meet here who's senior is either Swiss, Italian, German, or French. They're not even Americans or Australians. I'm not even American or Australian, and I look the way I do. What's my chance? I'm Miles Fisher, and this is Coffee with the Greats, a podcast that unpacks what it means to be great and how we get there. Joining me is my dad and former central banker, Richard Fisher. In this second episode, we talk to Ajay Banga about his family history, what he learned from his parents' struggles, how he gambled a promising career at Nestle to go down an unknown path that would lead to him becoming the CEO of one of the largest financial services in the world, MasterCard. There's some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's coffee with the greats. father was in the army and so we used to move I'm an army brat we used to move every you know few years couple of years two three years so I went to many schools uh, in many different cities before I finished high school kind of what happens if your dad is from the army all in India or all in India all over the world uh-huh. and all my education actually is in India that's an interesting point in itself Richard because mm-hmm. I did my undergrad in India as well and did my MBA in India I don't have an education outside and so I of Indian origin but also Indian minted so to say right With, yeah but that's why you've done well <laughs> I hope so you would think <laughs> although tradition uh, I think wisdom conventional wisdom has been that uh, if you wanted to do well in the corporate sector or in some form of civil society right. in the western world your degrees out of India didn't count and in a way they don't if you come right after the degree hmm. to get a job in the United States but if you are fortunate enough to have worked some years and then come then i think people in the us really don't care about what you look like or where you came from mm-hmm. all they care about is what you do and how you do it and i think that's unique to america it's not common to many parts of the world and so being able to be educated in india and grow up in india and have no formal overseas education would have only mattered at that point of time out of college not later that's mm-hmm. what makes america unique mm-hmm. just cares about what you bring to the party as compared to you know where you came from mm-hmm. Now, I, I understand your father was a, a high-ranking uh, esteemed general, but as you were a young boy, when you were born, was, was he a general at that point? Did you have siblings? And how, how did you uh, kind of grow up as a military brat, as it were? Yeah, so my, no, my father was a uh, much junior officer when I was born. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, was a, in, you know, so he kind of grew through the ranks of the Army over those years. By the time I, he retired, he was a lieutenant general running his, the Corps of Electrical and Mechanical Engineers. He mm-hmm. was the director general of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he had three kids. My sister's the eldest. And she was born literally when he was one year into the army. Wow. <laughs> and uh, my brother is the next, and he was five years younger than my sister. And then I was born five years after my brother. So my dad was, you know, 11, 12 years in the army by the time I came around. And he was the major at that time. And uh, retired, as I said, as a lieutenant general. So that's the sibling crowd as well. My sister lives in the United States, actually in Houston. Hmm. And her husband used to work for uh, Shell for many years and then came to work for what's now called Kellogg, Brown and Root, which became Hmm. uh, Halliburton, part of Halliburton. And he worked there for many years and now is retired from there. And my brother lives in London and works for Clayton Dubila Rice. That's a private equity firm. He used to be at Unilever for many years. So we've kind of got all followed our different paths. But the family is not in India any longer for all practical purposes. We are scattered mm. around the place. And what, what values did your father and mother give you as a young child? I would imagine it was a pretty disciplined household. Yeah. I would hope there were better values than what your dad is going to do. We'll strike that for yeah, the recording. Correct. Obviously, I know you have editing power, so it's, I, I can't get away with saying exactly what I want to say, because Richard will influence that. But all the, all the jokes aside, I think uh, it's tough to, as a son, and Richard knows this as a son himself, and you know this, it's tough to figure out exactly what values, but you get a, you get a, it's like a 
amorphous mass of things, of which one or two stand out as being the things that struck you really hard. Mm. So I'm going to pick those one or two and then give you a generic statement as well, mm, if you don't mind, because sure. that's kind of how I think about it. Please. The generic statement is that my dad and mom gave me two different generic thoughts. My dad's was connect to everybody, no matter whether they are the lowest guard outside your house in the army or the visiting general who's the chief of the army staff of something or the prime minister who came to your house because that's the right thing to do. Connect with everybody because if you connect with everybody, there's something to be learned from everyone and there's a humanity inside everyone. And I used to see my dad, even as a three-star general, stop on the way out of the house and always say something to the guard on the way out. He would always know the guys. He would know their family. He would know what's happening to their wife and their kids. I haven't lost that. And I've tried to be like that with my own attitude, my own way of thinking, but I've tried to be like that. I would say that's the overarching thing I got on my dad. Just this connect with everybody and learn from everyone and there's humanity in everyone. Mm. My mother's was very interesting. My mother was the first member of her family and the only one to go to college in her generation. Because they grew up, you know, you're talking about partition India and pre-partition India and uh, that was tough. It was a tough time. They came from a very rich family, but the migration from Pakistan into India, what is now Pakistan, earlier undivided India, which is both my parents came from that side, uh, destroyed my mother's family financially, Mm. completely. Mm. And they kind of came hiding, you know, jewelry and money and clothes and shoes. And if you read the books on the partition of India, it is quite vivid and quite unfortunate and Millions of people died in that in that uh, process. Can I just quickly uh, interject and ask, how old was she when her family's lifestyle completely changed? Oh, she changed? must have been 11, 12, 13 years old. Wow. Goodness. So it's like really hard. A searing, she was the searing experience. She was the eldest. Yeah, got the it. Eldest person in the family. So she also felt this weird sense of responsibility about the other kids. And there are stories of families like this coming across and breaking off into, you know, uh, different parts of India because they got separated in the trains. Mm-hmm. And they were young, so they didn't know how to find each other. And remember, this is 1940. No Google, no phone, <laughs> yeah. no nothing, right. no Facebook, no nothing. And so this is, you'll find people have found, like my mother's cousins turned up in Assam, and she had no idea. I went there on a trip, met one of them who said, Banga, Banga, uh, hmm. is your dad an army officer? Yeah, you know, my cousin was married to him. Can I find her? That's the kind of thing. Incredible. So it, it's, uh, I, think, I, I think 11, 12 is too young. She's probably 15, 16. I may be getting it wrong. My dad was 18, 19. So my mother was probably 15, 16, 17 years old when she came across. Family of six, you know, girls and two boys. Wow. They all came across. And uh, my mother, as I said, was the only one who went to college after that. And her determination to be different, a girl going to college in 1940-something India, where you're adding, you know, one issue to the other, huh. and her determination to go and get educated because she said, my education is what will make me different. Hmm. That is deeply ingrained in me, this hmm. determination, this desire to better yourself and to be there for someone who can make a difference. That's her trip. Hmm. So my dad's trip was connect to everybody. My mom's trip was make yourself better because you can get educated and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Hmm. Right? That's kind of her her thing in life. So that's the two. That's the genetics I got from them. The specific values that translated to that are unbelievably, you know, diverse. So you would get uh, my belief that you have to be willing to involve everybody around you in the story of your career or your work or your life or whatever you're doing. Meaning, you'll find if you wander with me in this office, uh, I'm the oldest guy here. They're even younger than you here, most of them. Actually, I'm the oldest guy here. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that goes true for almost any time. (laughs) But never mind, old fogies are like that. (laughs) But you'll find that all of them will come and chat with me. There's very little in this office that's about, oh, the CEO's in the office. Mm-hmm. You just, oh, there's, they'll be hanging around laughing, joking. The guy who just gave us coffee was teaching me how to use the app, saying, hey, Ajay, you have no idea how to use this. Let me show it to you. <laughs> and he's not even an employee. Yeah. He's an outside contractor. <laughs> right? So it's the idea is that you've got to connect to them outside of the outer garb of your role. Because otherwise, you'll never get to them. You'll get told what you need to be told by them only if you can connect to them in a very 
basic level that's away from I'm the CEO, you're my employee, or I'm the boss and you work for me, or any of that. Mm -hmm. So that I've really got in my head and my way of working. And I connect with everybody. And Richard has been around me long enough to see me do that in person, mm -hmm. from the lady who's helping us in a event to Richard. I will equate with both of them with the same level of interest. Dad, you always uh, like to connect with everybody. Just last mm -hmm. night we were at a restaurant. The maitre d' stops, pulls out uh, a whole bunch of Christmas cards we sent out all throughout the years. He's got every one of them. He's asking about your family and That's whatnot. And uh, it's just great. But I wanted to just ask, I'm the third born, I'm the youngest, and I uh, love being accessible to everyone. Yeah. And in a way, kind of being on. And it's part of my natural DNA. But it's also a bit exhausting. How do you, how do you stay charged up? And when you do your deep thinking, is it in isolation? Because I constantly feel almost obliged to be accessible and open for everyone. But it, it does take a big battery. You know, uh, being, a, being a CEO is classified by people as being a very lonely job. Hmm. It is lonely only if you don't take people with you. Loneliness is a state of mind. And if you don't take people with you, you will feel lonely. Because it is true that in a CEO's job, everybody who comes to your office probably has an agenda. Because they're coming there to either seek approval for something or to dispute something that you may have as an impression about something they're doing or to make you think well about them or there's something going on. Sure. They're not coming in to shoot the breeze and pat you on the back. Yeah. They really won't be. Yeah. That can translate into loneliness unless you do what I told you at the beginning, which is reach out and exactly what you're saying. Be accessible like your dad and you. It's part of the DNA in your system. Then it's not lonely. Now, it is tiring. But loneliness and tiredness are actually two sides of a different coin. You don't have to mix them up. Hmm. Uh, being lonely is a tragedy if you want to lead a company where all that you're doing aside from providing strategy and mission and clarity, all that you're doing is giving people a sight of which hill we should take. If you can point people to what hill you want to take, they'll take the hill. But if you give them conflicting directions, go up the hill, come down the hill, go sideways, go to the other hill, you'll have a very confused company and it'll show in your results. It'll show in the value that they place upon you as a leader. So to me, taking people with you and leadership are intertwined in a way that you cannot segregate the two. And therefore, loneliness and taking people with you are how you, you, you've got to fight the loneliness by, by recognizing you've got to take people with you. Now, the, the, the aspect of how do you find your own time, how do you find your own space to do your own thinking, it's really important. So one of the things you do well as you get into this, I think, is to manage your time well. If you're going to provide access to you deep inside to everybody, there's a little time you've got to give yourself. You've got to manage your day in that way. So, for example, typically, I will meet no one before 8.30 in the morning. Hmm. So when I come into the office in the morning, my first 45 minutes to an hour is for me. I'll do my stuff. I will catch up with my thinking. I'll make sure that what I want to get done over the next few days is that's when I push things out. That's when I can also read stuff. Uh, and I, I tend to do that at different points of time in the day. So I will rarely do back-to-back -back meetings. I will always keep half an hour, 15 minutes in between. There are days it doesn't work. Uh, but I come back, those 15 minutes, half an hour, are my downtime mm. for my brain to recharge, as well as to absorb what I just heard. And maybe I have three other thoughts. That process of giving yourself time, mm. short periods, short bursts, longer periods, you've got to build for yourself. One of the best times to, to recharge is on a long flight. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, you yeah. kind of... No one can call you. <laughs> exactly. And, in yeah. fact, one of the reasons why I think... Uh, I, we don't have corporate aircraft at MasterCard. We use commercial yep. planes. And I only use corporate aircraft and I land net jets. Yeah. But long flights I do commercially. One of the reasons is first class in a corporate aircraft or first, sorry, first class in a commercial flight is really good. Yeah. You change into your pajamas, pick up a glass of wine, put your headphones on, and the world is zoned out. Mm. And that's your time. And think in complete sentences. Absolutely. Yeah. Whereas in a corporate aircraft, there are three guys flying with you. Yeah. They got the CEO captive for 18 hours. <laughs> Poor They're going to make 12 presentations to him. <laughs> sure. Because they got you. They're going to discuss their career, their future, how they want your job, how their mother <laughs> needs help. Some muck, which they, is important to them. Of course. But to you, that's your only time. Right. And so 
you've got to find ways to create the time in your day uh, to have that thinking time. Yes, otherwise, your job's not just to be accessible. It's to provide a vision and to show the hill that you want people to climb. You're not going to do that if you don't have time. What time do you wake up and what time do you go to bed, Ajay? I wake up at 6, basically, Mm -hmm. give or take. I'll wake up earlier for the days I've got to be earlier, but 6 is my normal, natural time to get up. Actually, 8.30 is my normal, natural time, but you don't have that option. (laughs) I will when I retire. But 6 is there for the work, normal, natural time. Uh, I go to sleep anywhere between 11 and 11.30. So on an average day, about 11. 10.30, I'm normally zoned out in bed watching, you know, some mindless uh, news program. And that typically does lead to my That turns you down. <laughs> <laughs> and then what, what's, what's your routine between waking up and, and coming into the office? Pretty packed. I would be up. I'll be getting ready. I'll be ready and out the door, having read the paper maybe by 7.15. Which paper do you read? Uh, three papers. The Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Financial Times. Do you read them electronically or physically? I hate the electronic version of the hey. papers. I love... Being you're, able to you're defining them. our age group here. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> Although I, I read them when I'm traveling electronically yeah. because I can't get access to them as yeah. easily. But if I have a choice, I will always put away the iPad and pull out the actual paper. Mm-hmm. So right, what I do is I read the FT in the car on the way in, and I read the Wall Street Journal mm-hmm. at home, mm-hmm. and I read the New York Times, and I go back at night. Mm-hmm. And the reason we do it that way is my wife reads the FT in the morning, and so I can <laughs> take it in the car. She reads the Wall Street Journal when I'm gone. And so we've, I kind of let her choose what she reads, and then I take that with me, and hmm. I read the other one when I'm at home. Hmm. Will you try to squeeze in a little bit of exercise? Are you a big breakfast or coffee person? I'm a four times a week in the gym guy. Yeah. And that's normally in the evening. I said I'm not an early morning guy. So to try and get exercise before I go to work, I'd have to wake up at five. That's just... I'd rather not be exercising at 5 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so so I, the way I work it out is the following. If I'm traveling, I try and get back to the hotel at about 5.15, 5.30, four days in the week. Hmm. And that Saturday, Sunday is included, so you can get it. And then you, you uh, if I can get an hour in the gym, that gives me enough time to come back, have a shower, uh, and get back out to do client stuff starting at 7. And in most countries in the world, that works pretty well. Mm-hmm. And so if you do it in a consistent way, you can get your gym in the evening. And even here, when I'm, I do a lot of uh, evening meetings and dinner meetings, the nature of the B2B business. And so I'll do, I'll go back home, get to the gym in the building, and then back out again. Hmm. So I'm going to do tonight, for example. I have a dinner tonight, but I'll be in the gym by about 5, 5.15. So Ajay, you have two wonderful daughters and a fabulous wife. How do you find time for them, or how have you as you've come up the ladder in your career? I think making time for what matters to you is the single most important thing in the world. So if you're at work, pay attention to your work. Mm. If you're with your family, pay Pay attention to your family. family. Mm. The concept of balance between work and life is all a question of devoting yourself to what you're doing when you're there with them. Mm. It's the quality of the the time, Mm. not just the quantum of the time. Mm -hmm. If you're sitting with your wife but looking at your iPhone, you're Mm. not really with your wife. You're with something else. And so I... Richard, you know this, I, uh, but I go out for dinner and with Ritu and with friends in the weekends, including with your dad. Uh, my phone's not with me very often. Mm-hmm. People think I'm crazy. I don't have my phone. No, I you're saying they're crazy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I leave the phone at home. Yeah. And the logic is if somebody needs to reach me, they'll find me. Mm-hmm. My wife's phone is there. Uh, and frankly, the company can run without me for a few hours. Mm-hmm. If they can't, I'm doing a really poor job. So this is a crutch you don't need. And I actually leave it, so I'm not even tempted to look at it. Do you have any policies in uh, in meetings where people are required to turn off the phone? And Because I, I was reading a study just recently that even though, and here we are, politely you turn your phone over, you turn the screen off, but still it takes about 92% of the subconscious bandwidth as though it were right in front of it. It's not until it's physically turned off and outside the room because we're so used to, oh, that's an interesting question. Here's the answer machine. Let me just plug it in. And you yeah, are saying I, I agree with you on that. That, the, that this uh, but that's one of the reasons you leave it behind when you correct. Go out to so there's no, you got it. Right, got it. I don't bring it along because I don't want to be able to have it lying there and interrupting anything at all. Uh, the uh, we have no policies in the company other than purely we just shame each other. So <laughs> the, the fact is that if you're in a meeting and uh, just the other day a management committee meeting and three guys with on the phones and I just stopped. And stop speaking. There's pin drop silence. All three started looking up saying, what happened? And I said, good, at least you were listening. 
because I wasn't sure that you could hear anything given what you were doing. So do me a favor, give us all the respect of your attention. Otherwise, how would you feel if I was speaking and I was on this, you know, you, you were doing this? I feel bad. So mm. you know what? Go outside if you have an urgent issue. Take care of it and come back. I, I get it. You're running a business. You've got very serious problem. No problem. But generally, stay away from it. And, you know, if you do it once or twice, it kind of becomes part of the culture. You'll find in our office, by and large, there are very few people sitting in a conference room, if you wander around, who are looking at their phone. Mm. They just won't. The odd ones will. There'll be an urgent call. The guy will walk out. It's just no real policy. I don't need the policy. I need you to believe. And that's the... That's the principle of management in, in this place, is that what you do is interesting, but how you do it is more interesting. Mm. And I'll pay you for both. And I'll reward you for both. And I'll recognize you for both. And I will give you guidance if you don't do both properly. And you should do that for me. And once you do that back and forth, it becomes an open, honest exchange culture of, I like this, I don't like that. What you did didn't sound good to me. The way you said that to me was awkward. And therefore, all behavior, phones, conversations, management guidance, uh, tough discussions, shouting matches, all have a context of what you do and how you do it. So you can shout. Just remember that you've got to pick the guy up at the end too. Yeah. And that's the logic. Don't keep the frustration inside. Get it out. But just take the guys with you. So that's defined as having a hand on your back, not on your face. Right. And it's very simple to say it. It's really hard to live it. Every single interaction that you do with a person in the company, that hand on your back, not on your face, is a really important basic philosophy. That's a great, great phrase. So you, given, go back to your family, I mean, there is a question of manners. You obviously were raised with good manners and discipline. Social media can really interrupt good manners, don't you think? I do actually quite get onto a topic that worries me a little bit, which is that uh, technology for all its goods, after all, the phone is transformative. Right. From hailing an Uber to being able to connect to your family in an emergency or otherwise, it's transformative and it's got great value. It's the democratization of technology hmm. that's making all this happen. I mean, at the end of the day, years ago, before the printing press came, you know, priests interpreted God's word for you. Mm-hmm. Then came the printing press and they got printed Bibles. You could read it yourself. You may not understand it, but you had a chance. And then came Encyclopedia Britannica. And you could get knowledge by buying books, but only the rich could afford them. Then came Google. And everybody could find the Encyclopedia Britannica online. So technology is an unbelievable democratizing tool in so many beautiful ways. It takes away the arbitrage that you get from class and caste and, and accident to birth. The problem is, the other side of that is, if you become a slave to it, then all you've done is replace one caste system with another one. Excellent. And it's defined, it may not, you may not want to call it a caste system, but that's what you're doing. You're basically paying attention to something else rather than the person you're with. And right now, you're with that person because you're lucky enough to be human hmm. and leading a life. Man, if you're alive, it's the best thing in the world. But the whole value of being alive is the person you're with as compared to staring at a screen to communicate with somebody else all the time. Hmm. When you need to, by all means. But hmm. how about enjoying the person you're with? The Sharing a space rather than being the, yeah, some other exactly. space. Yeah. Well, and we, we started this interview. You said it is important to you to connect with everybody at every single level. And this, the world of connectivity, but it's a false connection. Your your tentacles are out, but there's no you're you're not using 100% concentration to really tangibly connect with anyone. Mads, that's actually a good point. Uh, and I'd say to you that uh, the concept of connectivity is a unfortunately misunderstood word. Hmm. Connectivity is not the ability to somehow push messages out or pull messages back. That's just the very basic standard of connectivity, which is what these mediums tell you they're doing. Real connectivity is when you connect and bond and connect really deep inside that says, I understand why Miles is doing this and I understand why he's speaking like this. He's trying to find an answer to something which matters to him and he has a development point of view. Let's say I get that about you. I'll answer you differently from he sends me some Facebook post that says, I love connecting with people, right? How does that mean? Yeah. It means nothing. Right. And so I'm not saying it's either or. I actually think these are complementary tools. I think technology, as I said, is a great arbitrage remover. You should use it. But don't replace your personal interaction 
with that. That would be a mistake. Use it to enhance your ability. Use it to enhance your capability. And boy, then you're multiplying many times over. That's the logic. When you were going back to you, a young man uh, at university, did you know that this was the, a field that you wanted to go in? Did you know that you wanted to uh, manage a large, large global <laughs> no, company? No, with, who, no. who were you? What were you studying? I didn't have a goddamn rat's ass clue. <laughs> <laughs> I had no clue. What I did have was the idea that I told you by mom's thing of determination yes, to no. get better. I knew I was going to do something with my life. I had no clue. Remember, I was graduating from my MBA at the age of 21 and a half. Because in India, at those days, you did your MBA straight after your undergrad. You didn't really go work three, four years and then come back. So I was 21 and a half when I finished my MBA. I didn't know anything. I barely knew how to find the men's room. I, you know, that's kind of what I knew. But I'd done an education, and it was from one of the best schools in the country, and I'd done really well there. And I'd met my wife-to-be. We weren't married. We couldn't afford to get married. We both broke. You met and, together as students? Yes. We were uh, business school uh, classmates. And uh, so that's all I knew. And then in that India of 1981, it had just begun to open up some years earlier to global firms. But they were all coming in with local Indian share ownership. So my brother by then had graduated from the same school five years before me. And he was working for Unilever. It was called Hindustan Lever. Mm-hmm. Hindustan as in India, yeah. Lever. Uh, with, you know, 60% of the stock was owned by the Indian public. There was no Indian partner. It was Indian public ownership. Yeah. I uh, went to join Nestle. In India, it used to be called Food Specialities Limited mm-hmm. at that time. With 40% of the stock held by Nestle, 60% by the Indian public. And the logic of that was the Indian government had rules saying, you want to come in here, you can't be a 100% owned foreign entity. You've got to be locally floated. And that's the way they were. But there were, so, there were few foreign companies. Many had left. IBM had left. Coca-Cola had left. Pepsi had come in. That's the kind of marketplace we were in. You didn't have too many choices. There were a few really good Indian companies and a few of these foreign companies. And when I finished my MBA, I kind of said, I want to join one of those. And I got into Nestle and I went and met my brother's pals who were all working in industry by then. And I sought information from them saying, talk to me about this company versus the others I've got. I had a couple of other offers. And every one of them said, go work there. I said, fine. So I went and joined it. Hmm. That's my extent of my research. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it worked out well. I spent 14 years there. So I didn't know. I think I knew I wanted to be in this kind of a company, but I didn't know what I would do. And the limits of my imagination were defining what I thought I could be. So I I tell a lot of young people regularly, don't over plan your career and don't stress about what you'd like to be at the age of 52, because between 22 and 52 is a very long time and everything will change five times over. So what's the big deal? Just relax. Take it a little bit as it comes. Care about yourself. Care about the guys you work with. Make sure everybody enjoys being with each other. Learn along the way. Learn from everybody. And it'll be just fine. Mm -hmm. Take a few risks. Don't say no. So a lot of young people, you tell them, hey, I'd like to transfer you to, uh, to Kenya because we think it's a great growth market for us. And by the way, it's a great job up for you. And you'll get this speech. I can't go. My father's old. I got to live here. My mother can't do this. My wife won't go there. My, I, my kids will get disturbed in school. All of which may be true. But all of which may also be excuses for you to not take on challenges that make you a better person. Mm. And the willingness to take on those challenges. We've moved. My elder daughter went to nine high schools before finishing high school across the world, not in one country. But America was the only one where she was there for any point of time and length in a school. And that was three years. So, uh, and they've grown up just fine. As your dad says, they're wonderful girls. He knows both of them. He's been personally helpful to both of them. They just are... They need no help. Yeah, but you know, the, it's Brilliant. like mentoring. It's yeah. helping. Yeah, I think your dad does that really well. So at the end of the day, uh, having the the willingness to take a risk and move and take it as it comes, as compared to over planning. If I go to Kenya, then I may miss that job in London, which means I won't get the next job in the United States six years from today. It out. makes no sense. The company structure will change five times between then and now. Our priorities will change. Those jobs may not become as important as they were. So stop over planning and mm. take it a little bit as it comes. It tends to flow pretty well if you have faith in yourself. 
Can you share with us an experience uh, in your life where this was unexpected and you weren't as much in the present tense thinking about the future tense implications and it ended up being a wonderful experience? No, I could give you every one of my moves. Really? That's how many I can give you. I left, um, I was at Nestle 14 years. As I said, I was 34, 35 years old by then, 35. I was the youngest ever this, the youngest ever that. So it's basically, the messages being given to me were, you're like, going to go places. And I was. I was progressing very rapidly. At the age of 30, I was running the largest region in the country for Nestle. The previous age group of people running that kind of job was 45. So the messages were clear. You're on the right path. So in theory, I should have just stayed there. Then one day I go overseas into Switzerland for a trip. And I have the great fortune of meeting a guy who was a very senior person in Nestle, who uh, kind of said to me, uh, you know, you've got a great future ahead of you, blah, blah. And I said to him, can I ask you a question? Everybody I meet here who's senior is either Swiss, Italian, German, or French. They're not even Americans and Australians. I'm not even American or Australian. And I look the way I do. What's my chance? And he said, quietly, after a little thinking, it's a great question. I don't know. But I do know this. You've got a long way that you can grow before you need to worry about that. I said, that's fair. And I kind of came back and said, boy, that's an interesting piece of information Mm. because of his honesty. And Nestle is a terrific company. Don't get me wrong. I learned a lot there. A lot of the things I use today in management came from those 14 years. And then someone said to me, American companies were entering India. And this is 1994, 95, pre Google. Mm. (laughs) American companies were entering India. And... uh, you should think about joining an American company because they don't care what you look like and where you came from. And I said, really? I said, yeah. Hmm. So I said, okay. So Pepsi, through a recruiter, reached out to me to say, we're starting the restaurant business in India. Would you like to do it? And I said, sure. Hmm. And that's how I left Tesla. Hmm. With this unbelievable pathway of career growth, saying, somebody said to me in a party in the evening that American companies don't care. I met Pepsi's recruiters, but they did look like they didn't care. There were all kinds of people in the room recruiting. And I said, you know what? This sounds like a really good idea. What do I lose? I'm 34. I'll, you know, life will work out. And I went. And two years, two and a half years into it, I learned that Pepsi was going to sell its restaurant business. And I said, look, I don't want to work for some Indian franchisee. And I'd happened to meet this guy from Citibank somewhere, and I ended up at Citibank. And I spent 14 years there, and I ended up in the top three guys in the company. And then... Along comes this offer from MasterCard and a couple of other companies in 2009. And it was the, I was running all of Asia for Siri. And it was clear that I was one of the candidates to get a chance to become the next CEO one day, one day in the future. Not, there's no time commitments. This one was more urgent, more immediate, and was in a field that was very exciting, technology and data. Mm. And it was a small company. So now you'll get a real answer to your question. I ran at Siri at that time. of the company's revenue, 50% of its profits. I used to have at one time 200,000 people reporting to me. I came to join a company whose market cap was $19 billion, had 4,000 employees, and basically was a... I had more employees in Hong Kong, city. Alone, city. the global employment of this company. That's... Most people thought I was crazy. Now, fast forward eight years. This company's market cap is now $135 billion. Right? I now have 14,000 employees, and everybody thinks I was a genius to have done that. It wasn't genius. It wasn't foolishness. It was the willingness to trust yourself and take a risk and think about exploring new things yeah. and exploring ideas. That's all. That's why it's a long answer to your question, but I could give you these examples from my life, and I believe in them, and I advise everybody I know, including my kids, Take the plunge. Don't be nervous. Take the plunge. Have some faith. Don't be, don't be, uh, don't be a flitting butterfly. That's bad. Mm. Do things well. But when you think you've done what you had to do and there's something new to excite you, take a chance with it. But Ajay, were there take any chance. disappointments oh, yeah. in your career and life and how did you deal with it? Plenty of disappointments. I would say the, the one at Pepsi about Pepsi spinning out its restaurant business, that right. did disappoint me. I was excited about Pepsi as a company. Right. I kind of enjoyed it. Yeah. I had enjoyed Nestle, so I have no complaints about 
any of these three companies I worked in before coming here. But what happened was the, I, the, the fact that they were going to spin it out came like a rude shock to me. Huh. I wasn't used to the idea of changing jobs for the sake of changing jobs. I'd come from a 14-year stint right. at Nestle. I thought I'd do 30 years at Pepsi. Huh. And then I didn't want to work for some Indian franchisee. That didn't sound right to me. That's not what I wanted to do. So did you feel untethered at that point? Completely. And And how did you deal with that? uh, Just psychologically? It's interesting. I picked this up mostly as rumor mongering, Hmm. not as a real conversation. The guy who had recruited me into PepsiCo restaurants uh, at that time in Asia left Hmm. and on the way out told me about it. Hmm. And said, why don't you come with me? And he went to join Bass, the family. Mm-hmm. In Fort Worth. And I said, uh, no, I don't jump jobs to follow people, man. I work for companies and institutions. Right. And so I don't know that institution. This one I know I'm staying here. But then it worked on my head. Huh. And I realized that I would end up in an awkward position. That did make me quite concerned. Huh. The good news is some degree of self-confidence and faith and maybe naivete, just don't know what could go wrong with life. When you're young, you're invincible. Hmm. I was still younger that time, and I felt invincible. <laughs> and I kind of said, you know what, I'll just, it's okay, I'll figure it out. And along comes this opportunity from Citibank, and a bunch of other foreign companies were coming into India that time. They were all looking for people like us to become their CEOs. Hmm. So I had a surfeit of choices, actually, hmm. at that time. And so that helped, you know, a little bit of naivety, a little bit of feeling invincible, but also choices. Huh. So the, the, what I tell folks about that learning is, you, if you're feeling nervous about something, confront it, huh. go at it. Huh. And eventually you'll find a couple of pathways out. It's a bit like in our company, everyone told me when I came, the technology is changing so rapidly that phone companies... Uh, mobile phone companies, uh-huh. AT&T, Verizon, companies we both know well, uh, combining with uh, other institutions, could easily create networks that go around you and you could be disintermediated. And I said, okay, so let's go talk to them and find out what they need and what do we bring? And they said, oh, no, no, no we can't do that. Mm-hmm. I said, well, no, 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 that is all we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> and so we did. And guess what? It's now eight years later and all those companies are our partners because we bring things they need huh. and we can deliver things for them in ways that they cannot. And they and, bring things you And need. they bring things I don't. So in life, confronting an issue will find you solutions and give you confidence. Nervousness about the issue and not confronting it is a definite recipe to feeling completely lost. Huh. Good. And so that's an important angle. You went from uh, consumer goods... Uh, for many years, and then to financial services globally, and now technology, data, B2B enterprise. What habits or ways of thinking did you have to sacrifice and kind of learn anew as you went from really different industries and sectors? That's a great question. Um, Let me think about that. You know, I'm sitting here as his dad thinking, that's a great question. That's a great question. I'm trying to answer for myself, but I want to hear your answer, Roger. (laughs) I'd say... uh, the B2B versus the others is easier to answer. Let's start there for a minute. All my previous jobs were B2C. Maybe not one-on-one, maybe wide, like at Nestle. There's very little one-on-one marketing in those days. Mm. It was you did research, discovered a gap in the market, you designed a product, you made it, you attached a value proposition to it, you put packaging, you put marketing, gave a price, rolled it out through a distribution channel, millions of people bought it or it bombed, one of the two, and then you moved on, Yep. right? And you managed its uh, consumer feedback loop and the like. The same, in a way, was true of banking, consumer banking. Somewhere along the line, I started getting into B2B even at Citibank, particularly when I was running Asia, because the corporate bank and the and the trading institutions were all part of that ambit. It was quite different because all of a sudden, your client was one. Mm. That person whom you were trying to sell a possible deal or opportunity to or a placement or an or a, or a M&A opportunity or, and so on. Same here, where my clients are merchants and banks. Uh, but the user of the card, you, are actually the client of that bank or that merchant. Mm. You're not mine. Mm-hmm. So I'm a B2B2C company. I'm not a B2C company. That aspect of changing from mass consumer to individualized to one person to meet, build a relationship, understand the needs, and sell to is quite a different model from each other. That takes quite a bit of learning. And I think that was the 
that is the biggest effort that I had to make. Hmm. Fortunately, Citibank's last role prepared me a little bit for that in so many ways. I think the other part is that you, I'm going to segregate uh, cultural differences. Nestle is a European company with very European methods of culture and operation, even though they're global. You know, Citibank is very American with very American ways of thinking and operating. And MasterCard's kind of an amorphous mass in between, a little bit of everything. And I think this is what you should be like. I actually think the earlier two lead you to approach things from an inside-out perspective. Uh, being a little bit of everything is an outside-in perspective, and that's the only long-term winning perspective. Because in a globalized In a globalized and globalizing and continuously right. globalizing world. Right, right. No matter what current nationalistic trends may say, I think young people, the age of your son and my children, will globalize our world irrespective of what older folks may think. Right. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, so uh, you've got to be outside in. Mm. And, uh, and I think that learning happened over the course of these jobs. I had to move a little bit from inside out to outside in. Mm-hmm. And I'd say that's a journey that I'm on. I don't know that I've, I can tell you I've made that move. It's still a continuous learning journey. The only other thing I'd say is that the, uh, everything else about companies, managing to your numbers, having clear missions and visions and and being able to state that with simplicity so that everybody in the company can identify with it, mm. which means the junior most youngest employee who joined yesterday, and it could be the older guy who joined yesterday, doesn't matter, junior most, youngest in tenure, I don't mean age, compared to who, who he or she has been here 35, 40 years, they should all identify simply with your mission. Ours is to kill cash. Hmm. That's it. And it's not mixed up with a lot of other things. There are a lot of ways to do it to get there. Yep. Lots of things to do. But the vision is very simple. And if you wandered around the office and you ask people, so what do you think MasterCard's into? They'll say, getting all of cash, killing cash. Hmm. And that's why you'll find cashless cafe written there. Mm-hmm. It's embedded in everything that we're doing. Hmm. Getting that vision and mission clear and simple and then having tools to measure progress against it, and then putting those tools in front of really good people, and then getting out of the way, is kind of what leadership is about. Hmm. Leadership is not about doing it yourself. You can't take that hill yourself. You gotta get the other guys to go take it with you. Yes. Remember, it's back to that loneliness and taking people with you. So if you can get the vision, create the tools, put them in front of really good people, and get the heck out of the way, you'll be a really successful leader. If you try and do it yourself, you might succeed, but you could also screw it up big time. And I don't know how to handicap that one. Hmm. Uh, so that's kind of the, I learned those along the way. Those are not unique to Nestle or Pepsi or Citibank or MasterCard. It's just my way of approaching this topic. Once you have that basic principle laid out, it works well. And the last three or four traits that I've learned along the way is you need to have some method of managing by walking around. Meaning, uh, you know, social media ain't going to help you manage. Emails won't help you manage. In fact, emails are the worst way to manage Mm. because only bad things get said on emails. You don't realize (laughs) what you're saying when you say it. So managing by walking around, which includes a global company's case, flying around, and then being accessible there in the office, hanging around for an hour and just wandering from one table to the other and saying, what do you do and why do you do this and can I help you? Uh Anything I should know? And then go to the next guy and say, what do you do? Why do you do this? What can I do for you? Anything I should know? Am I doing something bad? Not just the town halls, because those are important, but it's the one-on-ones and the little time with the high potential at breakfast or lunch. And it's that thing Mm. of managing by walking around that I've learned is irreplaceable. You know, Ajay, all all the great leaders we've talked to in regards to their field differentiate between, we can see it, that have very high IQs, but the successful ones have great EQs, emotional quotes. That's really what you're talking about. It is, and I'm, I, and I'm really glad you're raising that. You reminded me of something. In our company, we talk about IQ, mm-hmm. EQ, mm-hmm. and I have a third one, and it's called DQ. And it ain't That's Warren Buffett's Queen ice cream. Texas, by yeah. the way. It ain't Warren Buffett's <laughs> ice cream. I knew you were going there. I could see it in your eyes. <laughs> that I was going to get that wisecrack. So you notice I went down. Okay, you're, you're, you're. And you demonstrated EQ by seeing in his eyes. That's right. Like seeing an email. And he probably, in a, whatever DQ Correct. is, he probably exhibited that as well. DQ is decency quotient. Excellent. Ah. Excellent. And so what I tell people is, we're back to what you do and how you do it. Yeah. The hand on your back, not in your face. Huh? All these mean the same thing. Huh. They mean 
are you decent are you constructive hmm. do you care deeply about the people around you or hmm. is this a transactional thing you're getting done hmm. you have to be running this place you employed all these people yeah they'll all do what i tell them to do right and i'll get paid and life will move on hmm. that's one way of doing it i don't think most ceos are like that mm-hmm. they care deeply about the instruments of their success mm. and the instrument the biggest instrument of your success is the people who work with you yeah so the trick is that decency quotient when you go home at night you feel good you look in the mirror and say i'm a good guy i'm yeah. basically a good guy huh. you know i've made tough decisions i do i tell people fairly what i think i don't give them false news i don't tell them they're good when in the shaft them at year end in compensation huh. i don't tell them that there was a great job and actually i thought it was pretty bad on the other hand i don't shout at them unfairly i give them direction i care decency quotient which i Excellent. feel in many parts of our public sphere right now are less than visible to young people mm-hmm. i think dq is even more important than iq and eq because iq is a table stakes eq is for the good ones dq is for the really cool ones that's that's excellent and so that's kind of the iq eq dq i'm really glad you raised it i would have forgotten it in when i'm in the company i talk about it all the time but in an interview it's such an internal thing for the company yeah. that i tend not to speak about it i probably should <laughs> can we talk about one one thing that i've always thought so brilliant about mastercard is you said b to b to c but in the big picture straight to c to the individual it always struck me that mastercard elicited an emotional response what really matters in life is priceless we cover everything else we'll help you get there and wait now, did aj give you this to say this is brilliant <laughs> advertising no 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 but it's 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 true that, then you're on to the topic of to, dq there's the dq to again. elicit an emotional response from people yeah. and of course i would imagine one of the perks of the job mastercard of course sponsors such great events throughout the world yeah. to have fun yes. we help you get there and then yeah. for those things that do cost money in life uh cash is inefficient that's old we'll help you get there easier enjoy the things um how how do you further kind of emphasize that directly and is that kind of the thesis directly to the c at large yeah you're absolutely you're on to a very good topic which is uh, in traditional advertising uh, people will tell you that the way to appeal to a to a consumer is either through rational methodologies which is you know drive this car because it's safe and it will get you there this is the volvo old swedish ad very safe secure right. Uh, then there's the ultimate driving machine BMW deal, which is way beyond rational. Mm. It's into deeply into the emotional uh, and sensory. So it's the rational, emotional, sensory are the three, and you can use combinations of them. Mastercard's entire advertising, and this dates back to well before my time. The priceless campaign is before my time. I've just sustained it. It was my predecessor's brilliance, actually. Is that the logic of being purely transactional you know hey the best way to pay because it works kind of thing yeah interesting so what what's in it beyond that and that's where the emotional appeal of for everything else there's mastercard came to it some things in life are priceless and for everything else there's mastercard the emotion the the moments together the feelings that idea priceless surprises it's now grown it's become priceless surprises priceless cities so for example mm-hmm. what's the surprise uh, you're sitting with me in the french open tennis a year or two ago <laughs> and in walks jim courier to come and talk to us one on one for an yeah. hour and a half Fantastic. about what you're going to see in the coming match and why he thinks he will handicap it this way and how she will play this uh, stroke and how the other one's going to get pushed back away beyond the baseline if that happens she's losing and here's why now that's a a masterclass from a tennis great for us average joes didn't expect it if i told you it's happening it wasn't as much fun mm. the fact that he walked in without yeah. knowing that you without you guys knowing he would be there is what makes it fun that's the logic now translate that to more people we had uh, in china a bunch of young kids were learning how to play the piano with a piano teacher there were like 600 kids this is only in china 600 people learning at one time from one teacher and <laughs> and the teacher was a fan of lang lang while well, we got lang lang to walk in from the side Yeah. and she collapsed on the floor <laughs> unbelievable meanwhile the kids went nuts and well that's a priceless experience for the kids to see their well. teacher collapse <laughs> true <laughs> you had lang a double lang whammy on that one yeah, exactly <laughs> lang lang sat there and played two hand piano uh. with 50 60 kids uh. for two hours now you know those kids are never going to forget that moment 
and hopefully some of them will become outstanding pianists. Some will not, but they'll never forget the moment. That's the priceless surprise angle. So now we have priceless cities, priceless surprises, priceless causes. What's that? Stand up to cancer. You spend money in August in New York City. We top it up and round it off, and we give four million bucks to stand up to cancer every year, and we get to do it at the final game of the World Series, and it's really cool. And if you talk to our people in the company, this financial inclusion drive that we're on and driving for inclusive growth in the world, it's the single most important reason that young people want to work at our company. It's not the pay. It's not the fact that we do well. We have lots of challenges. We have lots of screw-ups, trust me. It's this thing that the company cares about more than just being at the center of commerce. So it's not just in the advertising. It's in how you lead your life. That's the point I'm making. And this goes back to the DQ. The company that goes back has to its the own DQ. DQ. It's all interconnected. All this intertwines to how you do things in addition to what you do. That's the most basic principle. Agreed. That's what matters. Right now, at this time in your life, what, what is a skill that you're personally committed to improving? No, I uh, could start at the 100. But <laughs> <laughs> there's so much more to do in my, in my own uh, comprehension of things. Right now, the single most important thing to me is digital. Everything digital. And I don't mean digital payments. Yes, that's one aspect of it. I mean everything digital. I mean, when you come into the office, your experience should be digital from the moment you enter. Mm. When you uh, are an employee, you shouldn't have to file your expense statements the old-fashioned way with seven receipts that have to be clipped to the stapler on a white piece of paper and filed. You should be able to file them off electronically from your statement or your phone. Uh, when you're a salesperson and you're out calling on the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas on a, let's say, using data and intelligence and analytics for something that he wants to do, which is to understand consumer spending, you should be able to be there with a phone or an iPad and be able to digitally connect into the latest information and show it to him. And he wants to do something different. You should be able to access what people had told him in the past right there. Mm-hmm. You should be able to figure out the profitability of the client right there. Mm-hmm. If you're still using a computer that you're going to plug in because the battery is not alive, and then you've got to sort of connect through a firewall and maybe connect with a beeping, pooping sound, and then say, <laughs> I'll call you back. Let me just find out. That's analog behavior. Yeah. So when I say digital, I mean all those things, right? From the technology in the office to, to what you do with the consumer outside. That right now is our single biggest journey. What, what is your artery of introduction to new technologies? So first of all, I do very little. You'll realize that very quickly that CEOs do very little of any real work. They do a lot <laughs> of uh, vision setting, mission setting, and quacking and, and enabling Mm. as compared to actually doing. doing. Right. If you start doing, you're going to cause a lot of trouble in the yeah. company because most of the stuff you do is going to be wrong. Right? So I just, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I'm quite relaxed about that. There are a lot of people doing a lot of stuff. So the way it works is you have to have, think of a funnel with a pipe at the end because the pipes connected to your clients, be it banks or merchants or governments or transit authorities, they can only absorb so much change at a time. Meanwhile, the funnel's got hundred things coming in from each of the really bright people you've got employed here who've been tasked with working something. So you've got to find a way to funnel that thing through the pipe in a way that the other end can absorb it. Otherwise, it'll be what's called drinking from a fire hose. Uh-huh. That's not pretty. Uh-huh. And so that's the management challenge in a company like ours. You first either have too narrow a pipe, in which case too few things are going through, or you excite the creative energies of the whole audience, and now there's too many things coming through, and you've got to find a way to create the crick in the neck that creates the correct size of pipe. That's not a science form. It's an art form. And it's an ongoing journey. And we screw up all the time. We either do too much or too little, and then we sort of self-correct and course-correct, and we're learning along the way. We're getting much better at now than we were some time ago. My first task was to create a funnel because we didn't have enough innovative ideas. Mm. Today, there's too many of them. I mean, that screen behind you over there is a product that was designed by six young people in this company who worked together on a challenge. We do these all the time. And they actually designed a product using our own data and they won the award and we paid them a quarter of a million dollars and said, go launch it. And they became the CEO. This 26-year-old kid became the CEO of that product. 
and it's now live and makes money and we show it in our innovation showcase to every client who comes in. Problem is there's like 65 more of those right now yeah. and we can't absorb more than seven. Yeah. How do you differentiate? That's the question. So you try and figure out where a business case makes more sense. You try and figure out where it'll be the easiest to launch. You try and figure out where it'll be the least problematic. And then you find your own funnel. Huh. And that's the, the crick in the neck that we are creating. I want to ask Ajay a question outside the business. What do you read to stay well-rounded outside of business, outside of the Wall Street Journal and the FT and the New York Times, et cetera? I don't read enough, Richard. I used to read much more. I, one of the things that has come with my travel and my role and the different things I've got myself involved with is that my ability to spend as much time doing non-directed reading has reduced. Even on Direct, these long flights. Yeah, well, directed reading yeah. works. Right. But non-directed reading, unfortunately, which is what I used to really enjoy because yeah. that's where your creativity comes from. Absolutely. Directed reading is already funneled, yeah. right? You need the big part of the funnel. I'm not doing as much of it as I used to. Hmm. But I do read The Economist mm -hmm. as my non-directed reading because mm -hmm. I find that it opens my mind to really interesting global perspectives without mm -hmm. having a bias in them. Mm -hmm. I, I'm nervous of biases because you can get taken in and spend a lot of time going down a rat hole. Mm -hmm. I find The Economist over time to have an outstanding non-biased system. I read a lot of books whenever I get a chance, mostly those, some on an iPad, some physically. I'm very fond of a couple of authors that there's an Indian author called Arundhati Roy who writes some outstanding books that have won Booker Prizes. Huh. And she is able to translate Indian origin in a Western context huh. that I relate to very quickly. So I find that interesting and different. But those aren't, those are directed reading. Huh. You know, I read a lot of books on that kind of thinking. It's the non-directed reading, the open reading that I really miss in the last five, seven, eight years. I try and soak it up from every channel possible. I make up for it through lots of uh, TV and watching. I both scroll through all kinds of stuff, but it's not the same. Huh. There's something about reading and spending the time to understand it that's different from watching. And does your wife free to round you out on that front? Or Extreme. So then how do you make up for this, yeah. uh, this lower reading? Most of it is through friends and family. Yeah. And if you spend enough time with people who are quite different from you in terms of their backgrounds, that's a way to get that stimulus and information. Hmm. And that's very helpful. And you now know me for some years and you'll find that the friends I hang out with are just completely from around the block. That's of right. different types of people. Right. And that helps because it pulls and pushes you hmm. into Rounds out your perspective. Yeah. yeah. But I, I still miss my, my non-directed reading. I regret that as one of the things I want to take up again. I know they're grown and independent out of the house, but is there anything you have tried to do and will continue to try to do for your children that wasn't necessarily done for you? Well, I don't know that it's a good thing that it wasn't done for me. So let me tell you what the difference. Mm. I think this generation, your generation, my kids, because your parents have a certain degree of financial capability and stability, I encourage my kids to take more risks earlier in their life than I was able to take when I was 21. And leaving business school, I needed to start earning. I needed to earn reasonably well and to be able to find my footing. And I think it worked out well for me because I got in the right company and I found great mentors and life worked out. So I'm not complaining. I'm just saying, I'm not sure that my cards were that wide as I would like them to be. Hmm. If I can play better cards for my kids, which is what I'm trying to do, and yet give them a sense of values that says, don't waste your cards, then I think I'm doing something for them I didn't quite have the luxury of getting. That's what I'm trying. It's a hard task. So... Uh, because I certainly have more financial wealth than my parents had when I was this age, and I've been really lucky to get that, I am always nervous that my kids should not take that for granted. That's a great point. And that's Burden a, them with privilege. You have to. Yeah. It'll be the wrong thing to do. Exactly. So you have to get them to feel the pleasure and the pain of earning their way, right. but also the willingness to take a risk that I could not take. And mm. that doesn't come when they become 21. It's something you talk about to them in different ways. You demonstrate it as you go along. 
I'm kind of hoping we got it right. It feels like we did because they're at that age now where I think they've crossed the hurdle of being judgmental about whether they got it right or not. And they've done well. And I'm very proud of them. And so I think that's Ritu's doing more than mine because with all the time I spent with them when I was away and about, her time spent with them was enormously more than mine. And I can see it in so many things in these kids that they've picked up her way of thinking, her values, her capabilities, her style, her sense of decency. It's, it's in my children. I'm very lucky that that worked out the right way. And bringing up kids is not a science. It's an art form, and it's a lot of luck. <laughs> and uh, and uh, ours worked out fine, just as yours, in Richard's case, have worked out really well. We're lucky guys, man, because now you can, you know, you're only as happy as your least happy child. That's hmm. exactly right. And... Be kind of cool, be happy, so it's good. Well, of all their many, many cards, uh, I'm sure they will not lose their MasterCard. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Coffee with the Greats. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. It really helps others find and discover the show. Coffee with the Greats is produced by Blamo Media. Visit blamomedia.co to learn more. Hey, lie.